Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, your chance in 30 minutes or less to get one proven and practical idea about how to run a more successful and sustainable business. And we have a special guest with us as always, but more importantly, he's a friend and uh, somebody I know you're going to be excited to hear from. I'm giving you my description of him. He may argue with a bit about this description, but what we'll see. He's a renaissance man. He is interested in and an expert in a lot of different areas. He is not a one-trick pony, as he likes to say. Hard work comes to him very naturally. It's part of who he is. I don't think he's ever done something where it was a job. It was much more of a lifestyle. He's a cancer survivor, and we could do a whole episode on just that, and, and maybe we will sometime. He's a great husband and father, but fundamentally, he's an entrepreneur who's learned how to not only start, scale, but then successfully run a mature business and then exited it pretty much on his own terms, which so few people ever get to do all three of those and do them as well as he has. He's Bill Hutter. Bill, welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. Ed, thank you very much. Those are very kind words to hear from a gentleman of your caliber. So I appreciate it. Well, they're well-deserved, well-earned. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your career as an entrepreneur? And remember now, we only got 30 minutes. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tend to use a lot of words. So, um, you know, I really started out in the restaurant business and, and saw some opportunity there where changing processes or innovation around processes could dramatically improve outcomes. So I was able to, to prove that out in, in a couple of different operations, and it became standard operating procedures for the companies that I worked for at the time, which were mostly privately held organizations that that started in the restaurant business, and all of a sudden they went, "Geez, what kind of business is this? I, you know, I don't understand this." So I was kind of the operations guy who built the systems. And once the systems were built, you know, the day-to-day stuff didn't really throw me, so I moved on. But I also realized that, that, you know, I became a father and my son turned three years old and I couldn't remember how he got to be three years old because the restaurant business is all about weekends, you know, and you're working when everybody else isn't. Yeah. Uh, so made a career change and went into human resources and eventually put everything on the line. Uh, with great support from home, from my wife, and because I couldn't have done it unless she supported me. And together, we built a pretty nice little outsourcing and consulting company. And here I am 20-some years later, and I'm looking for things to do. (laughs) (laughs) He's not exactly bored, but he's not exactly as busy as he would like. I think that's probably the best way to say it. Let me ask you this, Bill. How did you decide to go into HR? Because that is not a normal move for a lot of people who go from operations and process and systems kind of stuff. One of the, I want to say one of the things I innovated, and now it's common practice, but I really began to treat people like they were the most important asset in the company. 
in any restaurant. You know, they're your front line. They are the business to customers and guests that come in. Right. And if you treat them well, then they treat your your guests well. So, you know, this was back in the middle to late 70s. And this idea of treating, you know, restaurant employees and servers, wait staff and kitchen staff, like they were an important part of the process was really very quite innovative. But it, it worked out. And that became part of my mantra that employees are the most important asset of any company. And you invest in an asset and you take care of an asset. You don't simply try to reduce expenses. And the best way to do that was in the human resources field. Okay, that makes sense. One question, was it more important that you prove this to yourself or was it more important that you proved it to others at that point? And it almost seems to me it's more important you proved it to yourself that that was the right thing to do because intuitively you do it, but but you needed validation. Yeah, great question, Ed. And uh, I really... I can say that it, it, I've got good words now, but when I was doing it, I really didn't know what I was doing, except that my results were producing very good outcomes. You know, cost of operations were dramatically changing and dropping. One operation I took over, I dropped the food cost 4% simply by treating the, the cooks and the kitchen staff in a way that, that they hadn't been treated before. Yeah. And, um, you know, so all of a sudden they started realizing that, wait a minute here, if I do this a little bit different, you know, wait, we're putting too much on this plate. We're not doing this. This isn't right. And, you know, it's a dramatic, you know, when they become part of the ownership of, of that process, dramatic things improve. So it now just dawns on me. Did you were did you always like to cook before you ever got into that business or did always? OK. So that that was that was not a driver of of the business getting into it that, that you'd like to cook. It was in advance of that. Well, um, my whole family cooked. We cooked for the church. We cooked for the Lutheran Brotherhood. We cooked for the Saxon Club. We cooked for the <laughs> ladies. We cooked for the neighbors. We cooked. We had a 35 person picnic shelter with an outdoor place. We cooked. So that's what you did. Okay. That's what we that's what our family did. And when I started waiting tables when I was 18, my dad, who was also a meat cutter, you know, he said, What are you doing waiting tables? That's not a real job. And I went, Oh, we we've we've been in the food business our whole lives, Dad. What are you kidding? You know? And uh, I, I then, you know, the there there were certain social advantages that came with the restaurant business in the early seventies and uh Yeah. You know, Very it was great. Good. We had a great okay. time. All right. So tell the audience about what a PEO business is. When I uh, started in this outsourcing business, PEO stands for Professional Employer Organization. It used to be called Employee Leasing. And Professional Employer Organization is exactly what it sounds like. You provide a service to small to medium-sized companies that allows a third-party provider like a PEO to handle all of the backroom processes that come with having employees, whether it's payroll, workers' comp, employee benefits, retirement plan, all of the administrative overhead processes. 
Okay. And so you got into that world. Did you start a company or did you join a company who was in that? How did you make that transition? Well, initially I, I was doing, again, I was doing some operational improvement consulting and I, this whole idea about employees are the most important asset. And I heard of a company that had just started and I actually made an investment in the company. So I was able to watch that organization and then ultimately became part of it for a couple of years. And again, the same, with the same approach, improving processes, uh, streamlining internal operational issues. And so it, it you know, I, I, I guess I really didn't do anything new. I just did it in a different business. Yeah, it makes sense. So yes. then, uh, so, so you got into that world. You understood it. You, you had some approaches that made sense that I suspect differentiated you from some of the other PEOs, right? You were doing some things that others didn't. Well, one of the biggest things was, and, and, you know, thank goodness for the government in this. And that might be the only time I thank the government for anything, but the increasing rules and regulations that came all surrounding employment made it very challenging for small business to to be able to understand whatever it was they were in business for to make profit versus this whole other thing that operates inside their business, which right. is all this business of HR. Yeah. So the risk became very disproportionate in lawsuits and changing laws and and uh you know court precedent being set. So we took an approach very much of risk management where we would indemnify our clients and the officers for all the liability associated with employment related issues if they followed our practices, protocols and procedures. That's uh, uh, that that may not sound like a lot to some people listening, but if you've not been the owner of the business, you can't fully appreciate all of the risk that goes with it. And mm-hmm. um Yes. And, and so that's a very appealing offering to somebody whose capital is at risk, whose home may be and often is at risk. Life savings is at risk to, to do the business that they they happen to be involved with. So yes. I can I can see why that was very attractive, Bill. Yes, it worked. So let's let's talk about. So you're you're in that business. And, and how many clients would you say at any given time you had in, in your what I would say when you were really running, when you had it going? We got up to about 500 different business clients okay. at really at our peak. And then you have to make a decision. And I had to make a decision. You, you know, you, you, you can only get so big, you know, and I knew who I was. And uh, so I focused more on profitability of clients rather than scalable growth. And, but I mean, we were, you know, we scaled, we were already there. We were on $300 million in total revenue. So, you know, then I had to figure out how to become an operator. And that was, that was brutal. Yeah. That was, that was brutal. It's, it's as hard to move as any entrepreneur makes is to become an operator. No question about it. Yeah. So as I, as I thought about it and even knew when I wanted to have you on, you've had a front row seat to so many different kinds of owners and leaders mm-hmm. of businesses. You've, you've seen as many as anybody I can think of. So I want you to help the audience understand from your perspective, you know, what, what are the, some of the like 
biggest mistakes you routinely saw owners and leaders make? Let's start with the negative. So what are what are the the bad ones routinely do? The bad ones, uh, they let their ego make decisions for them. I was always appalled by parking lot in the, you pull up to a business and there's signs in the parking lot says reserved for the owner. You know, there's a right, uh, right next to the front door and it should be reserved for the best employee you had, not reserved <laughs> for Mr. Big Shot, you know, and so you could pretty much guarantee that when you saw those signs out front, it was a very kind of autocratic or top-down operation. And, you know, people don't like to admit it, but, but employees push back against that. They, they, don't, they don't like that, especially when it's, a small, when it's a small business, when all of a sudden the, the CEO is disproportionately recognized for the work of the employees. That's really the, the, the theme that I have seen, whether it's in German manufacturing companies or, you know, really mom and pop operations. Yeah, I, I, I certainly witnessed it. Any others besides ego? Not reinvesting in people. Any owner only has two hands. They only have two hands. They got a right hand and a left hand. But a business doesn't run like that. They can't be everywhere all the time. So if you're not willing to invest in those people that are helping produce revenue for you, then it, it's a, it's a tough road because you, you are, it also feeds turnover. Yeah. And one of those examples that, and it's the hardest thing for certain business owners to understand is that, well, I hired this person and I trained this person. And now they're doing really good, but I don't want to pay them any more money because I hired them and trained them. But now you hired them and trained them so they have a worth in the marketplace. So you better pay them what they're worth in the marketplace, because if you don't, somebody else is going to because you invested in the training. And it, it just creates a revolving door. It sure does. Bill and I serve on a board of advisors for a company that we both have excitement about. And uh, I think that conversation sounds very familiar to to a recent one we've had at the board. (laughs) It's true. It happens all the, and people said, well, you know, I invested all this in them and I sent them to these training sessions and I invested here and they went to Las Vegas and they went to Florida. And when am I going to get paid back? (laughs) Okay. If you don't take care of them, somebody else will. I mean, especially now. Especially yeah. in this environment, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, it is. It is a seller's market right now for for talent. No question about it. Let's let's follow that for just a, a second, okay. Bill. Do, how long do you do you think that's going to exist? Where the candidates for jobs will be fewer than the opportunities? Is that long, is that a twelve well, month, eighteen month? Is that longer? Uh, oh, I think it's longer. I think it's longer. There are, I I do believe it's longer. There are so many changing dynamics in the marketplace and people are figuring out how to make money in completely new ways. And especially this, this, you know, some of this aspect of work at home, Mm -hmm. you know, way back when somebody wrote a book called free agent nation and it was about the changing dynamics of the workforce. 
Well, that was, you know, 20 years ago, but now we're really seeing it occur. There are a lot more opportunities for individuals to get started because of this technology that we're using today to uh, to create revenue opportunities for themselves without with very little overhead. Yeah, right. Very little overhead. All right. Well, so if I'm an employer, I better assume that employees are going to be fewer, harder to find, more expensive today than and go for the foreseeable future. That's yeah. that's the position you would take. No, okay. No, no question about it. And it and it's been that way and it's going to I think it's going to get more complicated. So how often did you have to fire clients? You know, not very often. No, not very often. Okay. All right. All right. Um, because I, I think we did, we had a very good uh, methodology developed for vetting clients, but there certainly were a few times that we fired clients where the risk became disproportionate or how they uh, treated our internal employees. In fact, I fired the the largest revenue producing client we ever had. I fired because of their abusive approach to our staff and our HR staff. It was, it was just, it, it, it sounds like it was systemic. It wasn't just one individual. It was a variety no, it, of people who were, is that right? It was the nature of the, the company. And, you know, you, you, you know, again, as a, as a, as a start, I don't want to say it's a startup, but as a company that uh, was growing rapidly, you got to, I call it, you got to feed the pig. You got to feed the pig with new sales if you're reinvesting in growth. So when you have a large opportunity, it's going to produce a large amount of revenue. It enhances your cash flow. So you, we maybe compromised our decision because of the amount of money we were going to make. But after about a year or so, it just wasn't worth it anymore. Got it. Because not only were they abusive to our staff, but their their risk profile was just too high on the curve for us. We, we couldn't fix the problem. Let's say that I'm in a professional services business. What's the risk that I probably have that I'm not thinking about? Because I think uh, you bring up a really good point. I, I the conversation of risk goes on in just about every business of uh, that I serve today, and that's at a level that it didn't exist at ten years ago. So I'm curious about you were ahead of the curve on that. So I'm curious about what what is the risk that a lot of companies aren't recognizing they should probably be fearful of. The most expensive mistake. It wasn't a mistake, but it was a very, very expensive issue. An individual was driving, they were driving their own car in a work-related function. They were working, driving their own vehicle. Right. And they were not properly insured. Okay. And the company had not closed the gap on making sure that individuals that drive their own vehicles for the benefit of the company, because it becomes a company liability. Right. Um, and it was a permanent disability. Uh, there was a death involved. It was catastrophic. It was a catastrophic situation. And 
our client was improperly insured, but at least we were with a big, broad umbrella. So it didn't, it, but we got pulled into it, you know, because yeah. technically they were our employee. Right. But, you know, that, that is a risk that most people just, they don't even think about it. No, wouldn't, wouldn't be on their radar. Wow. Right. I, I, that's, that's, that's wonderful to, to have that kind of specificity. Thank you for, for doing that. Okay. Talk, talk about the differences between companies that are family owned and operated as opposed to those that don't have family members involved. There's just one, one family member, just the owner as such. Boy, that is it. I wish, hold on a second. I wish the audience could see Bill's face right now. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. It's, it's completely different because the business discussion ends up at the Thanksgiving table all the time. And you, yeah. you, you can't help it. Right. Um, we have had clients that were really very closely held family companies and the company existed for the family and everybody knew it. It wasn't a secret. They acknowledged it and they actually celebrated it. That was a, that was a, a great experience to get to know them. Okay. Yeah. Um, until there was a generational transition that started to occur. And then the knives came out. Okay. Because, <laughs> because everybody thought that because they had been there a long time, they deserved it. Yep. Yep. Right. They entitlement. There. Yeah. Okay. But entitlement, right? I'm still here. I'm a member of the family. I've been here the longest. I, I win. No, you know, so it's some of the most challenging consulting work that we did on generational transitions to to help people realize how they fit and why they fit. Mm -hmm. And and by the way, where they didn't fit. Right. Right? Just as important. Right. Just as just just as important. So there is a big difference. Did you ever advise companies and their families in that situation to start a family council? What 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 did you do in in those situations? Did you did you just start regular meetings with just the family principals? How how does that work? Our approach, and this is not the only approach, but our approach was to do individual interviews. Okay, gather the information, understand the the lay of the land, and then we actually kind of did some workshops to lay out and to create a picture for the future, right? Um, one of the things we found that was really important when people don't understand where they're going, mm-hmm. they resist going even though they don't, right? So yeah. so if you lay out a roadmap, if you lay out a, a, a picture for them that they can see how they fit, then they can cooperate. Where there's some bruised ego, sure. But when, you know, when we laid it all out, you know, it, it works, but it, it doesn't happen in three meetings. I can tell you it, it take, it took, you know, almost six months to work through it. Yeah. I can believe that. And that's consistent with what I've seen in, in similar situations in my own work. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about boards of advisors. You and I both serve on, on that one company's board. What, what's your general thought about companies having a board of advisors versus not having them? Uh, board, in my opinion, and I've been on five or six, they're always underutilized. The 
the owner that wants a board of advisors, not a statutory board, right? But, right. but an advisory board typically wants to use that advisory board to get pats on the back once a quarter or once every six months rather than utilizing the advisory board members individually through the process early on in their incubation of an idea. Because, you know, in the board that we serve on together, we show up once a quarter and it's a reporting function about what happened and what I've been working on the last three months. And you go, okay, great. So you already formed this idea. You just you just telling us about it or what, you know, <laughs> um, but it's, it's really, it's really hard because sometimes they don't want their thought process impacted while they're in the creative mindset. Right. Right. They don't yeah. want it. Well, it, it, you know, some people have to work through the creation or the formation of that idea on their own terms and, and, and boards, generally aren't that patient. So I can see that. I, I get that. Uh, at the same time, is a, if, if an owner wants to take the counsel of the, of the board members, I mean, not necessarily do what they say that the, the owner should do, but at least hear what their rationale is and, and consider it. I mean, my guess is most owners don't get that kind of feedback from anybody else. If, they don't, if, the, if the board does its job, they're going to hear things they wouldn't otherwise hear. Yeah, Would you agree? very much so. And that's what they should do. It is very difficult for somebody internally that's reliant on that business owner and their paycheck to get the kind of feedback that they really should be giving. And we had a process called, you know, it's decision making. And really, the all the board of advisors does is offer, you know, consult decision making. Right? Yes, it just. Right. Here's an idea. What am I thinking about this? What am I thinking about? How's this going to work? You know, it came up in this most recent board meeting where I said, you know, the biggest thing you're going to have to do is stop tinkering with your company. Right. You know, if you want it to be scalable. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I can imagine he's probably heard that at home. <laughs> but but I guarantee you nobody else <laughs> at the office is telling that yeah. Not nobody else. But if 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 you want to scale a business, you got to quit tinkering with it. That that makes perfect sense. And and I think he heard that. I think he understood that. It'll be hard for him not to tinker. Oh, I can I can also be, tell you that it'll be brutal. <laughs> it'll be brutal. All right, we we pretty well used up our time for this podcast, so we have to deliver on our. Uh, promise to our listeners about that one thing that as an owner or an executive, if I can only do one thing that lets me run a more successful, sustainable, scalable business for Bill Hutter, what's that one thing? They're actually directly related. Reinvest as much as you can to make sure you have a business and not just a job. You know, if you can't stop working and producing, you, you really don't have a business. You got a job that pays you good money. And so when you can walk away from your business for three months and still collect a paycheck, you got a business. Uh, but that takes a lot of investment and time and stay debt free if you can. Don't, <laughs> don't be beholden. Don't be beholden to anyone. That sure gives you a lot more options about how you take on whatever you choose to take on if you don't have debt. No question about it. 
Yeah, we did that and scaled to the number I shared earlier, the 300 million. We were debt free. What a good spot to be. Bill, it's always fun spending time with you. And I appreciate you sharing some of your vast amount of expertise with our audience. Moving forward, if somebody wanted to reach out to you to ask more questions, to to learn more, how's the best way for them to contact you? You know, uh, probably through email. You know, I, I still kind of stay busy. So email is something I always check. And it would really be WF Hutter at Gmail. That's H-U-T as in Tom, T as in Tom, E-R at gmail.com. Yes, sir. Okay. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for spending time with us today. I know our audience will get a lot from it. And we will definitely have you back on the Ed Epley experience in the not-too-distant future. Thanks so much, Bill. Thank you, Ed. It's been great fun. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's theepleygroup.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills.